0: Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. This podcast is produced to give fundraisers and nonprofit leaders like you the tools to increase mission impact. Tune in weekly so you don't miss a thing. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. This is Andrew Olson. I'm so glad to be here today, Uh, and I am really excited. We've got a a whole different format today. So um, my, my guest is a guest host today, Uh, versus an interview guest, Um, and I'm thrilled to be here again with Julia Rodonez, who um, you may have heard on the podcast before, but she is also the the host of the Nonprofit Courage Lab podcast. She's the founder of Nonprofit Courage Lab, uh, the coaching uh, program, and uh, just an all-around amazing human being and great fundraiser. Julie, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Andrew. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I am thrilled for you to be here. And uh, I'm going to turn the keys over to you and let you run the show for the day.
1: Well, that's where I'm most comfortable. So it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Awesome. So thanks so much for having me. Hello, everybody, our dear listeners. Um, So, Andrew, start us off. You have made a pretty big career change recently. Um, and uh, tell us about that. We want to know more.
0: Yeah, thank you for that question, Julie. I did just make a huge career change. As you know, I spent the last couple of years building and growing a direct response fundraising company called Alta's Marketing, which is part of the more companies. That was a lot of fun and a whole lot of challenge. You know, in, in two years, we grew that business significantly. Uh, we nearly doubled the staff, uh, which Obviously, in in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of staff uh, turnover across agencies. Um, so maybe that's not as surprising as it could be. But um, you know, what drove that is that we, in the same time period, doubled the revenue. For the organization, uh, and and the best part of that is the way that we did it was to build a fantastic culture uh, and grow some amazing partnerships with wonderful nonprofit organizations that are you know both uh, both local and global in their impact and service. You know, and uh, we we made a uh, what I believe to be a really significant impact in the nonprofit sector, and I'm I'm super proud of that work. Uh, you know, in the, in the process, I brought on a, a great leader and business operator named John Wilkinson. And, you know, John and I have been friends for almost 20 years now. We've worked in another agency for like 15 years together. Um, and I just think the world of him and his uh, his abilities. So I knew that with him in place, uh, I could confidently hand off the the leadership uh, of Altus and move on to something new and different. So with with that as the backdrop, you know, the big news, which, which broke on LinkedIn recently, is that I have... Uh, Made the decision and and joined Dickerson Baker uh, as their senior vice president of fundraising solutions. So in that capacity, um, what I'm going to be doing is overseeing their major gift consulting services and what they call their impact messaging uh, service line, which uh, which essentially is is the messaging elements that um, that serve both uh, major gift campaign work and and capital campaigns. Uh, in in the you know communications needs that are that are associated with both of those kind of programs, but what I'm um, what I'm really also super excited about is that in this capacity I'm also going to help lead the firm's expansion into new products and services to help increase net revenue for our our ministry and and other nonprofit partners. So you know I'm I'm super excited about this for a couple of reasons. First, uh, the people you know Derek Baker, who's the CEO of the company uh is just a fantastic human being. You know, he and I have been friends for probably 10, 12 years now. Uh we we've worked together on a bunch of different nonprofit client engagements over the years and just, you know, see the world pretty much the same way. So it's it's really nice to have that kind of alignment uh in leadership and and in uh in you know how how you see the sector, how you see people um, and culture. And, and really just, you know, kind of be singing from the same songbook when it when it comes to thinking about strategy for the business and, and for our clients. Uh, and, and then the rest of the team at Dickerson Baker, they're just fantastically talented, um, strategic, you know, focused uh, human beings who who are all kind of A-level players when it comes to major gifts, capital campaigns, uh, executive search, and, and nonprofit strategy. So um, it's it's exciting for me to be joining uh, the, this team at this point in their um, uh, in their life cycle, and and really being able to um, sit alongside such um, such thoughtful and strategic um, fundraisers, and and be thinking about. You know how do we move the needle on generosity? How do we move the needle on uh, leadership capacity and and really help organizations make significantly greater impact for their cause by leveling up their their talent and their fundraising? Um, and uh, and I think you know, thinking through all of that, what's what's encouraging to me is that there's such. Significant opportunity for growth, both in the nonprofit sector with the ministries and organizations we serve, but then also for the firm. You know, I think there's there's a lot of growth to be had uh, for us over the next five to ten years, and and I'm super excited to to help them along that growth journey.
1: Awesome! Congratulations!
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's
1: really exciting. So, why did you make this change? Um, tell me about tell us about your new role and what do you hope to accomplish in that role
0: yeah it's uh, so there's a couple of reasons you and i were talking uh, off camera a minute ago about just sort of what's going on with philanthropy and and some of the predictions for you know how terrible the world's going to be in the future when when philanthropy goes away and all those kind of things and you know i don't <laughs> believe that to be the case um, but I do think that things are shifting and, and in some cases in significant ways you know we we talked a lot about how the consolidation of of wealth is changing the face of philanthropy and how the rich are getting richer and and those at uh, middle income levels or lower income levels who often make up a large portion of smaller dollar givers is shrinking every day I, I think that's going to continue to to be the case and so as I was you know thinking about, the future, thinking about the impact that I want to make personally in the world. Um, I One of the things that that drew me in this direction was the opportunity to, um, to work with uh, people and teams who are engaging with high net worth donors and high net worth donor communities and really think about how we can improve the experience that we're providing to our donors to deliver more impact to them, which in turn, I expect means more more transformational impact financially for the organizations that we all uh, care about and the causes we all care about. and and the reason I um, the reason I picked this organization is that there's really no other company uh, or or firm in this sort of nonprofit service space that has the focus of, you know, not just, hey, we're fundraising consultants or not just, hey, we're a recruiter, but to say, we believe that the way to win as a nonprofit is to make sure that you have the best talent possible, that you have a sound strategy, and that you have the funding streams to actually take the talent and the strategy and execute them into a, a full and complete um, solution that actually meets your need or, or serves your community the way that you expect it to. And um, and then on top of that, uh, to have the opportunity to start creating create, um, new services that mean that, you know, we, we can deliver value for an organization, whether they say, we just need to go out and find new supporters for our organization, or we need help building a major gift program, or we think we need to embark on our first capital campaign um, to to be able to serve organizations in any of those spheres uh, is really exciting for me.
1: Yeah, that's so awesome. And, you know, I have the privilege of knowing you and knowing some of your experience and like what thought leadership you really bring to fundraising and to our sector and i think your one of your unique points of view is about leadership and culture and team culture and how that really impacts the bottom line how that really impacts fundraising results and so I can see how you would bring such tremendous value to the team. It's really exciting.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, this piece about culture and leadership, I think, is so important. And it's, it's so overlooked in many instances, right? But you know this um, so well, you live it every day, that the, the reality in most organizations is that when they say we have a fundraising problem, that fundraising problem is is either a culture problem or a leadership problem, Right. Um, That's right. So much of like building a fundraising strategy comes down to cultural alignment and leadership change management. if, If you get under the hood and actually understand what a fundraising consultant is doing every day. They're not out there thinking up brand new, never thought of before ways to raise money. Like there's not just a consultant sitting there going, dang it, what's the next ice bucket challenge that I can bring to this client, right? <laughs> um, that that rarely happens. If it does, that's a whole different story. But, uh, you know, we're, we're more often than not having hard conversations with leaders about how they are showing up and how they are investing in their people and what it takes to go from being an average organization to being a transformational organization in a community. And there's no, I think you've said this before, like there's no lack of money, right? There's lack of vision and there's lack of leadership. And and so the result is the money sits on the sidelines until they see someone who, who they can say, wow, yeah, I would invest in that person, right? And so uh, the the more that that I can, you know, bring to bear in this world around that issue of culture and leadership and and how it actually unlocks the the reservoir of of financial um support, I, I think is is, you know, really what I'm called to do in this world.
1: So good. Woo! That's good. Um so. Thinking about, you know, your experience in leading different teams, diverse teams uh, in your experience over the last decade, what have you learned doing that, that you hope to bring to this new role?
0: Yeah, um, you know, sometimes it's really exciting when we learn things as leaders and sometimes it's really painful, right? And I think over the last decade, I've had learnings on both sides of that. The, the biggest thing that I uh, think I've taken away from the last couple of years is just how much people matter
1: hmm.
0: and how much your investment as a leader in developing and coaching and encouraging your people has a result in the marketplace for you. Right? Hmm. Like like there's there's two schools of thought, right? There's the You should do these things just because it's part of being a good human being and being a good leader in in that respect. But for some organizations, that's not enough, right? Um, And and for those, I I like to talk about like, okay, what's the financial impact of having a healthy, well-connected, enabled team who believes that you're in their corner as the leader, right? And, And what I've seen over the last decade is that when a team feels well cared for and they feel like they have clarity about you know the goals and the vision and where you're going organizationally and they're bought into that and then they feel like you actually support them in the process uh there's there's really not anything that that team wouldn't do for that leader right and when i when we translate that to the fund development arena just imagine how much harder and how much stronger and how much smarter every fundraiser would work in this country if they actually knew that their CEO was in their corner, if they felt like when they asked for something, some sort of support, some sort of coaching, some sort of engagement that the the leader in the organization would say, yeah, absolutely, that's a no-brainer. We're going to get that for you um, and, and then make it happen. Like, I think we would see dramatic shifts in, and increases in the amount of revenue that, that we can generate um, as a sector. I think the other thing that I've learned over the last decade is, um, we really have to take care of ourselves well as leaders. Um, it's so easy to burn out and it's so easy to become useless to our teams when, mm. when we're not caring for ourselves first, right? And it, it, it can initially feel selfish, right? The idea like, oh, well, if I'm caring for myself, then I'm not caring for my team. And it's, there's not an either or, um, but you know, I was I was talking yeah. at the AFP in, in Pittsburgh a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things I share with them is it's it's like when you sit get on an airplane and the you know the safety announcement comes on and it says, put your mask on before helping others. That's not because they want you to be selfish. It's because if you don't, you're gonna pass out and be useless, right? And and the same thing is uh is very true uh, in our worlds. If we're not Learning and developing ourselves. If we're not finding opportunities to decompress, if we're not um, holding ourselves accountable, you know, all those things, then there's no way that we're going to do that effectively with our teams. And and when our teams fail, that's on us as leaders. It's not on them because we didn't set the environment correctly. And I think those, those are the two biggest learnings that I um, that I feel like I've gleaned over the last couple of years. And as I move into this new chapter. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm hopeful to take those and other learnings, and to to be able to help uh, nonprofit leaders, CEOs, CDOs, um, even boards, and and help them to start to understand just how critical the culture and leadership components are to their ability to raise revenue.
1: Mm, that's really good. I love those two big learnings and. It's hard to do for a lot of people. So I'm glad that that is something you are going to be teaching people. It, it is hard.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. And it's so it's so necessary um, to be able to create lasting impact. Um, you got to have staying power. So going off those two learnings, which I think are so important for the sector right now, what concerns you about the future of our industry?
0: Yeah. Um, so we've got a couple of things that, that I'm, I would say most concerned about. I think the first one is really this, uh, the talent crisis that we're experiencing. And you know, I, I hear so much about the quiet quitting and these, you know, Gen Zers mm. are resigning in mass and and you know, millennials aren't happy and, and all this stuff. and and I just keep coming back to, in most cases, it's still a leadership problem, right? Mm. People will stick around if they feel valued. And, and so I think the the big challenge that I see is how do we help leaders, understand these generational differences and the, the differences in needs and wants. I, I mean, I even feel it myself, right? I, I had a conversation a few weeks ago uh, with another leader uh, in, an, in an organization and and he was sharing about some of the things that his staff was asking for. And I thought, wow, that feels really entitled, right? You know, and like how dare they was, was the first reaction I had. And then I kind of sat back and I was like, well, huh. wait a minute. If... If that's what they need in order to be successful, like it's not it's not like they're asking for somebody to go buy them a Porsche, right? You know, they're they're just saying I need this, this, and this in order to be effective. We we have one of two options there. We can either provide the resources they need and help them be successful, or we can say no, and then we have to manage the failure, right? So, so how you know how do we reset? our own expectations and our own comfort levels. You know, another good example of this is the whole like work from home, you know, re- remote versus in the office. You know, I, I keep hearing from certain areas of the sector, people saying, oh, you have to be in the office because that's what, you know, good management happens in the office. Well, that's only if you only know how one way to manage, right? And And if we can only manage by walking around and like mandating and dictating things, and not through influence, um, which I think is a healthier way to manage, uh, then yeah, you're going to have a problem with remote employees, but the world is changing significantly. And I don't see a a scenario where we're all going back to offices anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So the people that have to change are those in leadership, not the, uh, not the employees who are saying like, Hey, it should have been this way before. Right. Or I can be most effective for you sitting in my house, wearing my hoodie and my jeans and I can still be closing six-figure gifts, right? Um, so I think, you know, the, the my big concern is that we're not going to figure this piece out fast enough and that we're going to have a significant talent drain on top of what was already a challenging talent market in our sector,
1: right?
0: Mm. Um, so Yeah, go ahead.
1: I'm going to ask you a follow-up because I think that that's really astute and I I agree. I think even the piece about leadership being resistant to change and resisting the way that the world is changing is not a new issue, right? This is like (laughs) been around for a long time. Um, So what do you do with, let's say, a CEO who is like, look, I need butts in seats. If I'm paying these people, I want to see them in the office somewhat regularly, right? Maybe it's not five days a week and is resistant to remote work or to really sort of any like responsive uh, work culture that perhaps their team is asking for. What, what do you do? How do you work through that? And what is to be done about that problem?
0: Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think, you know, in some cases, you're not going to win, right? And, and the, you're, you're going to end up in a scenario where you're essentially managing decline in an organization because the leader can't get out of their own way. But I also have seen some promise elsewhere, you know, where you know, the, there's one organization I know of where where the, the leader kind of said the same thing. He said, no, 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 I I pay for the building. Like we're going to be in it, right? And and I, I think we can get more out of people if they're doing this. And to his credit, he went and interviewed, I don't know, half dozen, 10 employees in different uh, uh, departments throughout the organization, thinking that they would all say that they were eager to come back into the office, and that they were distracted at home, and they would be more likely to um, to be successful in in the building. and And it was it was really funny. He came back, and he's like, "I just don't believe it." But they all said that they get more work done, and they feel like they get it done faster when they're at home, right? And and so he ended up saying, "Well, if that's the case, even though I'm really uncomfortable with this, we're going to let this ride." And we're going to have to figure out how we do this, you know, moving forward. Now, I I think at that point the leader has to then say what leadership development and coaching mechanisms do we need to put in place so that our middle management and other leaders have the tools they need to manage remotely, right? So I've been managing a remote teams since two thousand nine. It's a it's a very steep learning curve when you first do it. Right? Now now, I feel like I can mm-hmm. do it in my sleep. but um but early on, it required a whole lot of different approach to management and leadership than you have in, in a mm-hmm. you know in office environment. Um, but I think you know if if there's a leader that's resistant, probably the first thing I'd do is try to set up a test, right? What if we just took these two people and we pulled them out and we let them work remotely these days? Now the the challenge with this is you have to come to an agreement that what matters is outcomes and not process. Right. So if the, if the goal for those people is, let's just say they're fundraisers, right. If they need to generate, you know, X dollars or whatever, whatever that metric is that they're held accountable to, it can't be about how they did the work. It has to be about did the work happen by the time we expected it. Right. And if, if, we can get agreement on that, which, by the way, I think is important whether you're in the office or not. Um, but for this to work, you've got to have agreement that we're outcomes focused, we're not process and system focused, and and then you know measure that over a brief period, maybe a ninety day period, with some key milestones to to check and say, okay, wait a minute, are we on target? Are we ahead of target? Are we behind? How are we correcting? If we're ahead, how are we taking you know advantage of these opportunities? And then at the end of 90 days, just have a really candid conversation that, you know, we did this and nothing burned down. And in fact, we hit these targets. Maybe we exceeded these targets. Um, And and given that, then let's also go talk to the employees and see how they feel about the work. And do they feel more connected? Do they feel more empowered? Do they feel more engaged? Um, And let that guide your decision making. Yeah, I, th- I think organizations that um, that have enough employees can do sort of a Net Promoter Score survey, and and start to get some data around how the employees perceive the organization and how they perceive working from home or working in a hybrid environment uh, is different from working uh, in an office. Um, th- those are the ways that that I think are most effective in what I've seen so far. All of that assumes that you have a leader who's open to different, right? if they are just completely closed off, then you, you again, probably are going back to, you know, managing a declining organization.
1: Right. I like that you're assuming that people want to change. I would like to give them the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. And what I'm hearing you say, Andrew, is listening
0: mm-hmm.
1: is, is key. Yeah. And to be open to and take into consideration your team's feedback. I think that what some leaders get stuck on is that they believe they know best. And so what you're saying is, Hey, you might have a pretty good idea and you also might be wrong.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And let's be open to the idea that we could be wrong and we might get a different result. Right. If we listen and if we try something and you know, if it does fail, at least we're failing fast and it's time bound, it's, you know, ninety days or sixty days or whatever the measurement is. It's not like we're making this commitment forever, right? Uh, I think that's so it's so smart. I love that.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like we we hire these people because we thought they were smart, right? Like like I think it's rare that somebody's like, I'm going to hire this person that I think is a complete idiot, but let's just see what happens, <laughs> right? Um, you, usually, it's like, hey, we're really excited this person's fantastic, they're brilliant, blah, 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 all this argument for why they should be in the organization. And then they throw an idea out the next day and you're like, well, that's dumb. We're not going to do that. Like what what changed in that 24 hour period, right? Because they're the same person that you hired, right? And, And it's just that now there's a cognitive dissonance between what you want to believe and and what you're being presented with, and and so that's where I think leaders have to decide like, am I going to put my ego aside and I'm gonna am I going to put my own beliefs aside and let the data drive our decision making process?
1: Mm, that's good.
0: Um, the other thing that I'm concerned about is uh, this this whole phenomenon around lower dollar donor retention, right? So we were talking about this off off camera as well, but we're We're not seeing any decrease in major gift revenue or uh, or engagement rates. In fact, in some cases, it's it's better than it has been in the past. But um between inflation and recession and job loss and tax policy, uh, i I am very concerned about the the continued squeezing of the middle class and the squeezing out of folks who are, you know, lower income on the spectrum, and what that means to everyday philanthropy. Um, And and that's one of those things that I think may, we may not see the exact implications today, but over the next 10 years, I think that could be a significant um, detrimental impact to to philanthropy in general.
1: Mm. Yeah, there's there's a lot there, right? We could probably riff on that for like an hour, it's like four <laughs>
0: more episodes. Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh, yeah, it's a it's a whole series. Um, but thank you for your insight. So, what is something that, or maybe a couple of things that you're excited about in fundraising and in the future of just nonprofit in general?
0: Yeah. Um. So there's a there's a number of different things that it's almost like a mirror image of of, uh, the, the concerns, right? So on the talent side, uh, and on the leadership side, there are some really strong, um, outspoken focused leaders in the sector who are starting to raise their hand and say, we have to do this differently. Right. Um, and, and who actually have results to back it up. And Mm. so I, you know, I am, I'm hopeful that those leaders continue to, um, number one, continue to develop other leaders right within their sphere of influence and, and that we continue to share out the positive impact that organizations are making when they are led well so that that becomes the model for other organizations and other leaders to say, you know what, this might feel risky, but they did it and it worked really well. So what if we try it, right? Like you said, what, what if we try it, we, we time-bound it, we fail fast we learn from it we fix it we do it again um but the more that we can start to show and highlight those successful leaders who are doing this well and and who are getting the kind of impact results that are um that are the result of that i i think the, you know the the more hope i'll have from a leadership perspective um i am continuing to to be excited around um what the industry is doing with data and analytics and uh, machine learning and those kind of things and really being, you know, not, not just to make things simpler, faster, cheaper, but, but really to start us down the path of how do we talk to donors at scale in a way that we would talk to them if we were sitting across the kitchen table from them. Right. Mm. Because the idea that we should send a hundred thousand pieces of mail to a hundred thousand people. And, you know, if we stacked all those letters up together the only thing that's different is the name on the envelope like we've got to kill that right that's it's it, it's a bygone era you know byproduct and and there's no way that we will build relationship with people when they just feel like donor number 900 you know 9749 versus feeling like i know that you are julie right so i i am i'm thrilled with where data and analytics are going in that environment To the extent that we can actually harness them to create more personalized relationships with people. And well, you know,
1: you are speaking my language. I love that. I'm like (laughs) all about major gifts, building relationships. That's where it's at. I think that that's so spot on. That's definitely the future of major gifts fundraising. And it's what people need to be doing now if they want to have a recession proof strategy. Right want to be able to weather the storms that we're headed into and that are going to come in the future, right We know right. that they're coming. so re- having relationships with your individual donors is the best way to be able to recession proof your fundraising strategy.
0: Yeah, I mean you know what's what drives me nuts is this idea that like well, highly personalized communication is only for major donors. like you know a donor who gives me 25 dollars, is no less of a human being than a donor who gives me 25,000, right? And as you know, in many cases, that $25 gift, that $100 gift, that $500 gift is a line in the water to test and see, is this organization worthy of my continued support Mm -hmm. that may eventually end up in a six or seven figure contribution from that same donor. So I don't think we can afford to not be intentional about Mm -hmm. how we build relationships even with the donors who, you know, if you look at a spreadsheet, you might say, well, that's the lowest dollar donor we have, right? I mean, what makes me cringe is when I hear an organization say, well, we don't send thank you receipts to donors who give less than $50. Like, really? That is the stingiest, like, most ungrateful thing I've ever heard of. And I get that it's a there's a financial issue with it, mm-hmm. but it just makes me so angry to hear that. <laughs> and, that. And, and so, you know, I think... The, the more that we can start to, in mass, treat people the way that we would if we were just talking to them one-on-one, um, the more likely it is that we can actually turn some of these philanthropic trends around and really start to positively impact the bottom line.
1: Mm, that's beautiful. So we are in Q4, the end of the year, giving season and you know there are a lot of nonprofits that are doing well right now and raising a lot of money and there are a lot of nonprofits that are really concerned and struggling and are seeing changes in giving and it's impacting their revenue they're laying off staff they're having to make really tough decisions and what is what is your advice for those organizations? What are your thoughts on the season that we're in the state of the world and the state of the sector?
0: Yeah, um, so a couple thoughts on that. I mean, first, like I, I would say do everything you can not to lay people off, right? Um, because the number one, just laying people off sucks. Right. Like just bottom line, from a humanity perspective, you know, from a a emotional stress perspective, it it sucks for everybody, Um, mostly for those who get laid off. Um, And it's so simple, not easy necessarily, but so simple to create a structure that allows you to avoid that. Right. You teach this every day. Right. If you need to raise X number of dollars to continue operating your organization, it starts with picking up the phone, right? And so when I hear of an organization saying, well, we're gonna have to do layoffs because we don't have funding. And then I see that they have gift officers who aren't making calls, who aren't going on meetings, who aren't visiting with donors, who aren't making asks, like, okay, let's start right there then, right? Um, and and fix that before we decide, hey, we just have to cut people, right? Um, I would say, you know, based on what we're seeing in the data and, and the research right now, um, there's not a lack of money, and there, there's certainly a lack of excitement around giving to certain organizations and certain causes because we, as fundraisers, haven't done as much work as we need to, or we haven't done the right work to engage those people well and to create the case that convinces a donor, Hey, this is exactly what I need to be doing with my money right now. And I need to give today to make this happen. Um, So I would say like, you know, the sky is not falling. It may be falling individually in certain areas. And, and like we talked about earlier, you know, there, there are going to be some subsectors of the, of the nonprofit sector that are harder hit. Right. Um, uh, I think we're still seeing, uh, ramifications of the pandemic in the arts ar- arena uh, and in some other you know, areas like that where it will be harder because you just don't have the same built-in audience that you used to have. But at the same time, um, there are sort of the shining, you know, the, the bright shining examples, even within the arts of people raising a lot of money and positively impacting organizations and, and communities through that, which tells me that it's more about things we're not doing. Or not doing well than it is about an environmental issue that's causing this to you know to be the case. So I, so much of it comes back to are we leading well and are we executing a plan to raise the revenue um, in a way that actually delivers results. And so you know rather than going and looking for the newest widget or the newest piece of technology you can add to your website or or any of those sort of silver bullet ideas. For me, so much of this comes back to, are we leveraging the relationships that we have? Are we being bold? Are we picking up the phone and making those uh, those calls, getting those meetings and presenting donors with an opportunity to make an impact in the world that's meaningful and transformational? And if we're doing that, I think so many organizations that are on the bubble can actually be successful if they'll just embrace that approach.
1: So good. I hope y'all are taking notes. Really good. Uh, well, you know, I agree. I, I retweet everything you just said. It's really, it's, really, it's true. And that and that's my style too, right? Is look, what are the things that we have control over? And let's do that with excellence and let's skill up. Let's get better at what we need to get better at. Um, because there, there's a lot we can't control, but there's a lot we can. Yeah. And there's a lot of opportunities. So let's stop leaving money on the table with the people who are already bought into the mission, who are already saying, Hey, I trust you. Here's a thousand dollars. You know, I want to see more of what you're doing in the world for that person. Let's do a really kick-ass job with them. And then that's going to lead to exponential growth, you know, in the long run. Yeah. So Andrew, what final thoughts do you want to share with the listeners today?
0: Yeah, Um, I think what's important to remember is the world and the challenges we face are not as bad as they feel like they are. Just about everything that you're facing can be overcome. We need you to lead well, even if you're not, quote unquote, a leader. Right. If you're not a CEO, you're not an executive director. You can still lead from anywhere within your organization, and and your cause and the people you serve need you to show up every day and do the hard work. And the positive result of that is you're going to change and save lives, um, even though it might feel hard.
1: So good. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me on the podcast today and sharing more about your journey and your insights. It's been awesome to be here with you. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for um, for agreeing to host this. I appreciate it. And uh, any chance I get to hang out with you is always a, a good thing. So um, really good to see you and, and grateful that you were able to do this today. Have you read my Amazon number one bestselling book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them Yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site.